I'd like to begin by asking you a couple of questions. And uh, I am well aware that these, these are not easy questions to answer. Uh, so it's a little bit unfair of me, perhaps, a little bit naughty. Um, but I'm asking them to, to probe a little bit into um, uh, an aspect and dimension of um, of our lives and also of our relationship with the world and with nature that often doesn't get um, probed into and opened up. So hopefully there's something in these questions, despite their difficulty, that can um, begin to probe and open up um, an inquiry and a conversation um, at a certain level and in certain directions. So here are the questions. If, uh, as I as uh, as I hope you do, if you if you say or think or feel, I love the earth. I love nature. If you say or feel or think that, what do you mean exactly? I love nature. I love the earth. You may not have articulated that, but if you feel that. What do you mean exactly? In other words, what is it that you love? What is it that you love? I don't mean uh, give me a list of specific trees. I love that big turkey oak at the front of Guy House, or I love this particular stretch of beach, this place, this whatever it is. I don't. I don't mean that. I mean. What is it about the earth or nature that you love? And what, what, what do you even mean when you um, say or feel or think uh, earth, the earth, or nature? I said, not, not easy questions, kind of awkward and, and a little bit unfair. Very difficult to answer, very difficult to probe in that direction. What is it you love, and what do you mean? What do we mean when we say earth, nature? So just take a little, just a little time right now to, to, to see what comes for you with that, to probe a little bit. What do you mean? Not easy, uh, these questions, uh, but just see what comes up and how you would frame it, how you would um, articulate that for yourself.
actually extremely interested to hear everyone's answer, but obviously that's not possible. And um, just for the sake of time, we'll move on. So I should have given you more time. But let's let's uh, let me say something about that, uh, or rather add to those questions. Um, did beauty have something to do with your answer, with what you love? And if so, uh, what exactly do you mean by beauty? That's, you know, do you mean um, pretty sights, nice colors and uh, arrangement of colors in, in, a, in a nice sunset or sunrise? Do you mean um, pleasant sounds, pleasant, uh, sweet uh, melodies of, of birds, pleasant sense experience? Is that what you mean by beauty? Again, I'm not being very fair here, but I want to open something up through through the questioning, so just, just bear with this. So is it pleasant sense experiences? Pretty sights, pretty sounds, etc. Pretty touch, the breeze on the cheek or whatever. Nice fragrances of flowers. Is it um, wonder? Is that part of what you know? Is there wonder? At, at the biology of it all, the intricacy of the biology of nature, the diversity of that biology, the, 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 the mechanisms of its evolution, staggering complexity of, of that. Is there wonder at all of that? Is that part of, of, of what you love? Part of even what we mean by earth and nature? Uh, wonder also perhaps at the... Um, dynamics of uh, either self-regulating ecosystems or evolving ecosystems. The wonder at that intricacy and and the dynamics of that. Do you love and do you mean by nature and wonder at the fact of the interconnectedness of all these biological processes? The fact of the interconnectedness of all these biological processes. Is that part of it? Is it a love uh, of the support that you recognize uh, that the Earth's biological processes, the biological processes of nature, provide for you, for us? The, The sustenance. Matrix, uh, from mater, mother, mother earth, the matrix of support uh, provided by these, uh, the, the total intricate net of biological processes. Does your answer to these difficult questions, does it involve amazement and wonder? I imagine it does. <coughs> May do. I mean, there's no right and wrong here, just again, just probing. And if it includes uh, an appreciation of the support that the Earth's biological processes provide, does it also include an acknowledgement of the the danger and potential harms of uh, that very totality of biological processes, the power of nature um, in, in very different ways to harm and cause danger for us and for other beings? Is it all of these? Uh, these little half answers I've, I've given. 
So whatever it is you articulated in response to those difficult questions, what do you love? And what is earth? What is nature? I wonder if now you can, so to speak, step back from your articulation, from whatever you formulated as an answer, and kind of hear it, hear your own answer, but not so much from inside it, almost as if you were hearing it afresh uh, and, and just sort of appraising that answer, if that's possible, to the extent that that's possible. Because what I really also want to ask in all this is if you can hear that statement, so to speak, uh, more from the outside, not being wrapped up in it, is there something missing from whatever you articulated, from the statement that you articulated to yourself about your love and about what nature is? Is there something missing? Has your answer captured completely what it is you love and what the earth and nature is? Or is there something missing from what you articulated? You know, um, love always and in many ways involves view. And view by view, I mean an idea of something, a sort of intellectual idea, whether it's conscious or not, or articulated or not, or verbal or not, and also the perception, the view, the way of looking, the sense of something. Love always involves view, view in in of of what we love. In other words, when I love, I'm looking at something in a certain way. And when I look at something in a certain way, um, it, uh, it is part of my love and it affects my love. Love always involves you. This is a big part of what I want to talk about today. Always and in many ways. And we can view things in in many ways. Other views are possible. Other ways of looking are possible. So this, these questions that I ask you have to do with love and to do with view, which always go together in, in complex ways, as I, I want to kind of elaborate on and expand. But if I come back to this question, is there something missing from whatever you articulated in response to those you know, kind of unfair questions about your love of, of the earth and love of nature, is, was sacredness, a sense of sacredness, a part of what you articulated? The sacredness of the earth, the sacredness of nature. Was that a part of your articulation? Was that a part? Is that a part of what you love? Is that somehow uh, an integral aspect of your love and of your sense of what nature is and what earth is? Sacred is a difficult word these days, as I'm going to go into a little bit. But really, there are many kind, actually infinite uh, possible kinds of experience of sacredness for us as human beings, infinite. There's no end to the um, reach and the variety of the sense of sacredness, the perceptions of sacredness, the kinds of sacredness that we can feel and sense. So I, I certainly don't mean anything um, to prescribe any kind of um, uh, 
particular sense of sacredness or idea of sacredness at all. There's a, um, sometimes the the sense of sacredness is, is what would obviously be heard uh, and appraised by someone else as sacred. Uh, perhaps uh, nature as um, uh, a face of the divine, an expression of the divine, something angelic, what's called a theophany, an appearance of the divine, a face of the divine. Something as obvious as that. Maybe it really includes for Dharma practice a sense of the emptiness of nature. I'm going to come back to all this. Or maybe much much less obvious than such sort of um, uh, blatantly um, sacred kind of language. So no, no prescription. But is sacredness a part of your love, a part of your sense uh, and view of what earth and nature is? And then if sacredness is part of it for you, do you voice it? Do you voice that sense of sacredness um, in your um, activism, in your um, engagement with with um, environmental issues and um, engaged dharma, etc.? Do you um, voice it? And how do you voice it if you do? So sacredness part of it, or is it there, but it's somehow, it's not something that comes out um, in your expression, uh, in, your, in your voice. So these are the kind of things I, I want to go into. In <coughs> modernist culture, if you like, is the, 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 the culture that we live in the, these days in the West, uh, what I call the culture of modernism as the dominant um, view and way of understanding and thinking and feeling things. In modernist cultures, dominated by what we could call secular humanism, uh, or actually, maybe more uh, comprehensive, accurate to say, uh, it's, it's increasingly um, dominated or characterized by a seeming abyss uh, between secular humanism and narrow religious fundamentalism that's characteristic of kind of modernist culture these days and you need to read the news or the kind of debates that go on or really don't go on because there's, there's a, there is an abyss there the conversations are, are not being had um, this kind of abyss between secular humanism and narrow religious fundamentalism which sometimes have a lot more in common with each other as um, poles and polarities than, than either end of that polarity would like to admit. Um, but in this culture, dominated by secularism, by this kind of abyss between secular humanism and narrow religious fundamentalism, there seems very little um, appeal in the discourse around climate change or environmental um, crisis, crises that we face, very little appeal in the discourse to a sense of nature and the cosmos as sacred. Uh, it seems to me. And even um, from religious institutions and traditions or spiritual institutions and traditions, very, very little, very cautious or um, minor um, in relation to other points they might make, points about um, political equality and caring for the poor, all of which is hugely important. But this aspect of sacredness seems... Um, uh, sh- shrunk or, or, or exiled from, from the discourse. C- 
cut out? Is it taboo? Is it, uh, are we afraid that uh, it, it will be mocked, dismissed, regarded as irrelevant? Do we regard it as irrelevant? Have we lost a certain vocabulary over the centuries? Lost the vocabulary of holiness, of sacredness, and of invoking that? Have we even lost, um, not everyone obviously, but as a culture, as a, uh, you know, what's pervasive in the culture, have we lost even the perspective and the sense of sacredness? Has it gone from our view, from our sense of the world? So historically, of course, um, there, there, there came at some point in history, um, following uh, the Enlightenment, the Western Enlightenment, etc., and the separation of church and state gradually, slowly. This is a very good thing, taking away power from uh, sometimes corrupt institutions. Separ- the separation of church and state, so-called, a very, you know, helpful. Uh, separation that occurred in, in, in Western history. But with it um, also perhaps came a separation uh, of just not just the institutions of church and state, but a separation of the sense of sacredness from the economic, political, public discourse. So that's a huge generalization, I know, and uh, in some areas of, of the West that's definitely not the case. Um, but, but as a generalization, that may be something that had the sense of the sacredness uh, often became, if it was there at all, if it was left at all, if it didn't dwindle and wasn't eroded completely, and became something private and personal and separate from the, 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 the public discourse on economics and politics and... and, and, and um, civil life, civil society. So just recently, uh, um, not too long ago, uh, Jeb Bush, younger brother of George W. and son of um, Elder George, uh, ex-presidents, um, I think he's governor of Florida. Um, and I think he's still running for, tends to run for the Republican president, uh, presidential nomination. can't remember. But anyway, uh, he, he said... Um, I don't get my economic policy from my bishop, cardinal, or pope. And he said that in response to um, uh, comments by the pope of about the obligations of Catholics and also of politicians in regard to the environment and um, the climate. But there's this separation. So he is a Catholic. Um, but even for him, separating economics, politics, from um, whatever he might consider... Uh, or, or sense as sacred in his life. So in this um, eroding and uh, denigrating or exiling or dismissing of um, the sense of the sacred that has happened over um, centuries now in the West, um, it's created a void where there was sac- sacredness. Um, there is now a void, an absence And of course, of course, um, things uh, either, you could say, rush in or or get thrust in to that void to try and fill it. Of course. One of those things is love. 
and particularly romantic love. And also the, the, the rise in Western consciousness of the um, primacy and importance and kind of hype around uh, romantic love. It's become a kind of secular god, if you like, for us in, I, I don't know, the last 150 years or so. Slowly, gradual, these things. Humans must love. In, in one way or another, we must love. We must love. But what I partly want to go into today is um, how and is our love constrained, constricted? So we talk a lot, we're a little bit obsessed by love, and especially romantic love or family love and loving your children and all that. And, but is our love and our very notion of love and the possibilities of our love constrained in different ways? So even in relation to something like, um, in fact, in relation to climate change, there is a, uh, started in the last few years, this um, campaign for the love of, you, you may be aware of it, um, and sort of asking people to express and write in and share and share photos, etc., of what they love um, that is at threat from climate change and environmental degradation, etc., and, and there's something very lovely in that because it's good to, instead of um, just critiquing and just a sort of rage and anger and negativity that can so much uh, uh, come in, you know, I think it has a place, but come into the, the discourse around climate change and environment. And it's good to include and emphasize um, the emotions, but also the positive emotions of love. But then you get people writing in saying, I love chocolate. Chocolate is actually one of the things that's threatened uh, with climate change because of the cocoa plant and what it needs to grow, etc. And the, the kind of bio, uh, ecosystems it needs to grow. I love chocolate. I love chocolate. I love chocolate. And what's happened here? I mean, I, I actually do like chocolate, <laughs> but what's happened in, 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 in this kind of um, absence of the sacred, the hype of love, the movement of that into the discourse, and then what? There's still the absence, it seems to me, of, of the discourse of sacredness, of the view and the sense of sacredness. And I, I could I could be wrong here, and so even um, writers like George Monbiot, uh, who I have huge appreciation for, very much enjoy his uh, work, um, seem uh, not so much to include that dimension, um, the sense of sacredness, in in the discourse, in the conversation. And I don't know if. Um, uh, it's it's a shyness, as I said, or a fear of judgment, or it's just not there, or, or what. So partly what I want to do is open open this up, this question of the, the, the sacred and the sense of the sacred, the perception and the idea of the sacred. Open up, is it possible to reintroduce it into the whole picture? Um, and also, as I said, if it's there already for you, um, what can what can be done to to support the courage, and it does take courage, to invoke it and to voice it in one's activism, in in what one expresses in the world, um, uh, to others, um, in society about climate change and about the environmental crises that we face, about uh, to to voice it as part of the whole way of seeing and sensing nature.
because if our love, um, and, and that could be love for anything, we're talking about nature and earth, now, if our love is constrained by our view, by certain ideas or conceptual frameworks or just the sense that we have of things, then that has consequences. Has all kinds of consequences. That constraining of love by view has consequences. Will will, will create absences of voids in our in our love and in our action. And particularly, and what I want to get into and explain um, as we go on is, if love is constrained by view, then um, what I'm going to call the erotic elements and the vertical elements. Um, I will explain these, will be missing from our love and our view. The erotic and the vertical dimensions will be missing from our love and from our sense of of what we love, of in this case, earth, nature. And that has consequences. That will have consequences. The, um, the novelist, uh, Jonathan Franzen, um, this is from a Guardian article I read uh, earlier this year um, said he writes uh, Jonathan Franzen writes that climate change has achieved what none of the madnesses of the 20th century could the final defeat of human reason he writes the great hope of the western enlightenment the hope that human rationality would enable us to transcend our evolutionary limitations That hope has taken a beating from wars and genocides, but only now, on the problem of climate change, has it founded altogether, he says. We can hope to address environmental and uh, climate change issues rationally and hope that we can be smart enough technologically and all that to figure it out. But, as as he he implies there by, by, by the problem, the limit of human rationality applied to something like this when, when it applied alone. Do we not need to perceive and feel differently? Not just to think differently and figure something clever out in terms of solutions. Of course that's important. But do we not need to perceive and feel differently? Perceive the world, earth, nature, self and others. Perceive and feel them differently. All that. Is there not a need uh, for us to re-enchant the cosmos, the cosmos that um, has become, over the centuries, uh, dis, uh, lost its enchantment for us? It's kind of disenchantment. We live in a flat cosmos, as I'll um, go into in a bit more detail as we go on. Is there not a problem with our, our worldview, our Weltanschauung, our, our, our seeing of the world? So in this talk, as I said, I want to talk about the interaction of love and view and how um, uh, view might limit or open love and and also vice versa. The interaction uh, of love and view and, and what that does either by limiting or opening. So um, the political aspects or dimensions of the conversation around climate and environment, the economic, the scientific aspect, of course, obviously important, crucially important, but but really, um, in this talk, I really want to address 
another level of the whole thing, uh, uh, come at things from another angle, uh, what I see as an important piece of, of the whole, a necessary piece of the whole conversation, the whole opening up that needs to happen. Because climate change and environmental crisis, they're not just crises of technology, crises of politics or capitalism or economic systems. Climate change and um, the environmental crises, multiple environmental crises we face, are crises of values. They're crises of values. And values are rooted in what? Where do we get values from? We have a crisis in our values. And, and, and values are rooted in what? Well, actually, that's a complex question, but part of what values are rooted in are views. Beliefs, perceptions, sensibilities. Of course, um, values influence these things, so it's, again, it's mutual, mutually feeding. And there may be, too, something about heart capacities and just what we're capable of letting ourselves value for fear of the... The, the stretching of the heart that's involved there and the perhaps depth of grief and emotion that are involved. But, but for, for now, what I really want to emphasize is the, the, the values, the, the, the um, rooting of values, the conditioning of values by views, beliefs, perceptions, sensibilities. So, uh, and before I get into all this, just, just to say something or, 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 or stress something about, put this talk in, in a context uh, and say a couple of things about that. Firstly, um, my agenda, if you like, or my intention for the talk is um, hopefully um, to open up uh, a, a, a range of possibilities um, generally and in all directions to, to sort of um, hopefully plant seeds, maybe just scatter seeds um, in terms of views, ideas, um, communications, the inflow and the outflow um, of activism, what flows into our activism and our engagement um, with these issues and what flows out of that. That's my agenda, is really to open that up um, more and more generally and in all directions. Um, so I'm interested in a plurality of ways of, of, of doing that. I'm not interested in, in just saying this is the one thing that's important at all. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in different approaches, different directions, and different tones too, and different styles of communication. Uh, there is a place for, I think, for criticism and stridency, even rage, etc. And there's a place for cool analysis and uh, poetry and all of that. Um, but within all that, so that's my agenda, uh, opening that up in multiple directions, uh, uh, and, and this uh, talk is part of that. So, But you have to find, as a listener, you have to find what you personally resonate with. And, um, and that's up to you. That's the scattering seeds. They, they, they grow um, where they will, and that's completely fine. So that's what's important, is that you resonate uh, with, with what, what, what resonates for, for you, personally. Now, you will hear um, that I have a leaning and a personal preference 
um, in all this, and particularly in what I'm talking about today. Um, but that's not my agenda. I don't want to thrust that on anyone, um, and certainly not in any particular form. Um, I, I could not... It would be futile of me to to pretend that I don't have a leaning and a personal preference and to try and kind of keep that out from the, the, the way I express things and, and what comes into the talk. I, I do... I can't help, I lean towards the mystical, I lean towards the sacred, I lean towards um, uh, uh, a sense of uh, a radical emptiness and what that opens up in the, in the possibility of perception and the, the sacredness and the, the uh, mystical sense of things that that brings. So that's my personal preference and leaning, I'm just freely admitting that, but it's different than my agenda. So hopefully, if, if, if you do hear that, my leaning and the way I, I uh, prefer, what I, my personal preference, that you won't confuse that with my agenda, which is actually just more this opening up. Because there's, there's a second question or, to, or statement to, to the context here uh, of a talk like this, which is, what do you need um, in regard to your activism and your engagement? What does your heart and soul need? So it's interesting um, knowing <coughs> activists and some uh, some long-term activists can get kind of hardened, uh, embittered, uh, etc. Uh, th- through through the course of years of activism, and and maybe what's needed is for them to reconnect with the heart, with their heart, with the love that was the origin of their activism. That some of them actually need not to reconnect, but to connect in the first place. They never, uh, some, somehow the heart was uh, not something <coughs> that was uh, opened enough or received enough attention or healing or whatever in the first place. <coughs> um, so that might be a need. Um, in, in the whole conversation around activism and, and engagement, what you need. Some activists need um, what we could call emotional skills or the skills of working uh, with and navigating um, the, the, heart, uh, the heart's responses to, to the tragedies that we face and, and the disasters that are unfolding and, and, the, and the pain and the suffering of all that. Uh, to the emotional skills, the meditative tools, etc., to work well with um, what that does in the heart and the heart's responses to all that. And that includes skillful learning, skillful responses, how to address burnout in in, in, in activism. That's a part of it. Both address it um, in uh, in the heart and the mind and the body, um, and also just practically into how one is approaching activism. And some activists, uh, what they need is courage, they need in encouragement uh, to communicate what they love, or they need to learn skill, the skills to communicate love, so that the, the, the love that they feel can pour through their communication, their activism. And many, many um, aspects of activism and, and places where we are at different times in terms of what we actually need. So again, this talk just fits into one... Uh, you, you know, it's one piece in, in a much bigger um, pie, if you like. Uh, one, one slice of a pie, one level, as I said, one tack, one approach. And 
what I want to do in, 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 is open up uh, and explore our perception, our view, our sense of earth, nature, and particularly um, of the sacredness of that, or the possible um, view, sense, perception of the sacredness of earth and nature. And also open up and explore um, our ideas, views, perceptions, senses of what love is. So what is involved in love? And that word involve, you know, related to revolve and revolution from, from Latin. Um, uh, like what turns in, 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 in the field of love? What are the elements that mix together and turn together and fertilize and interact um, within, within love, so to speak, that either grows that love or takes it in different directions or opens it in a certain way or colors it or limits it? What is involved in love? That's part of the original difficult questions I asked you. What, what is it about nature that you love and what do you mean by nature? So, exploring in this talk, um, love of nature as a basis for our activism. We're talking about an ecology of love. Love of nature as a basis for activism, also as a basis for ecology, for understanding or, or our idea of what nature is. That the love of nature becomes part of the idea, must influence the idea of what nature is. So, love of nature as a basis for activism and ecology. And also, this exploring love and how it works. In other words, the um, psychological and spiritual ecology of love, if you like, the, the, the study of, of the dynamics of love, the inner, inner and outer dynamics of love, mostly the inner today. Actually, actually both. Um, so, uh, in the title, An Ecology of Love, y- you can hear there's a double meaning. Um, and, and just to confess, I... I um, I seem to like putting double or even triple meanings in, in titles uh, to try and get the most uh, most meaning and most expression out of uh, you know out of limited time, limited words. Um, anyway, uh, let's uh, let's go into this. Um, This poor word, love, four-letter word, has um, become so stretched and has has been made to, to, to try and do so much work in so many different directions and dimensions, um, and and more and more so as the as the sort of in recent centuries. Um, but let's just start with a statement and and say, love, the word love is, is undefinable. I mean, ultimately, it's undefinable, um, and admit that. But nevertheless, um, although it's undefinable, we could just shrug and walk away from from kind of exploring it. It's still explorable, and there's still um, aspects or or dynamics and dimensions of of love um, or ways of thinking about it, etc., and breaking it up um, that can still be very fruitful um, in our lives and our expressions, and, um, and and fruitful for 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 the psyche, for the soul, um, for our being. So we can say, or right, we can say many, many things, despite the undefinability of love. But right now, let's say a few things. And, and firstly, and, and and especially for this talk, what I want to emphasize is when we say love, um, uh, we I want to include two uh, 
aspects or currents or kinds of love. One is metta. Uh, so many of you will know this Pali word, M-E-T-T-A. It's usually translated as loving kindness. Um, and, and, and in a way that's something very, very, very simple. We can define that as um, universal and unconditional well-wishing, wishing well for all. Uh, it's just that. So whoever, um, uh, including oneself, whoever uh, you are or, or this being is, um, I wish it well in, in everything that, that that word well means. I wish it well. Um, and uh, the, the meta is ideally um, universal. It spreads without leaving any being out. And, and it's unconditional in that way. It's not dependent on what this thing or, or being can do for me or, or whether I like it or not, or it's pretty or not. So that's meta. Something very, very simple is universal, unconditional well-wishing, wishing well. So love, um, as we're talking about today, I want to emphasize one thing. Love includes meta. It's one kind of love. And also what I'm going to call eros. E-R-O-S, from, from the Greek Greek word. Um, now, eros uh, is not simple. Meta is simple. I'm not saying meta is easy um, in, in its sort of fullness and ideal, but, but, uh, but it's simple. Eros is not simple. Eros is also undefinable, I would say, ultimately speaking. Um, eros was a god or a kind of god in, in, in Greek mythology. Um, and gods by by definition, are undefinable, if you like. They, they are infinite. They, they, we cannot plumb uh, or, or encapsulate them or capture them in any definition. N- nevertheless, again, we can start in, in relation to Eros with, with a kind of, if you like, um, modest, what sounds like a modest, uh, sort of small... Uh, working definition. We could start with something like that and see where it takes us in this whole investigation. Um, so by eros, I, I, I certainly include um, within eros the sexual and sexuality and sexual desire and sexual feeling and sexual energy and all that. Um, I include that and actually, uh, just to, as an aside, um, uh, there, there is... Uh, a very uh, potent possibility for meditators to use um, the sexual, erotic, skillful meditative use of the sexual, erotic, imaginal um, in a way that ends up spreading to sacralize, to make sacred in our perception the, 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 the sense of, 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 of the world, of nature, of the whole cosmos. Um, but that's... Um, certainly worthy of at least one of the talk. So I, I include all that, including the sexual. But right now, I actually start with something that sounds much more general uh, and a kind of more modest definition, if it will sound like it. Eros as the desire to connect. Now you may need to think about that for a while. Eros as the desire to connect. Um... With meta, um, there's the desire for well-wishing. I, I, I want you to be well. If you like, would say that meta has any desire in it. Um, there's a there's a wholesome desire, um, but it's not a desire to connect. I may or may not interact with this person that I'm wishing well. What I want is for them to be well. I don't need an interaction, a connection, uh, a, a knowing of their particularities. 
let's start with this. Eros is a desire to connect. I'm going to come back to this and amplify it a little bit more. So, included in love are both meta and Eros, and they're different, uh, different, yeah, levels, streams, kinds of love. Now, both meta and Eros uh, will always involve um, a, a view, I mean, it was idea and sense. Always when I use the word view, I mean idea and sense. Um, conscious and unconscious idea, um, verbal, nonverbal, articulated or not. Um, but always involve the, the, the um, idea and sense, the view of both self and other. Both meta and eros always involve the, the view of self and other. It's intrinsic to meta and to eros, intrinsic to love, as I was saying earlier. Now, one of the things that's crucial, absolutely crucial, vital to understand about views is they're not fixed. They're not fixed. They change. Our views change. Hopefully they do. Our views can change. Um, But we just need to look around and see culturally views change. Um, Of course, we can fix views, but looking around, culturally... uh, um, what I mean to say is views don't have to be fixed. And they tend um, at times to get fixed and they tend also to change. But culturally, if we look around us, um, views change. It's, it's, it's obvious from culture to culture, from um, one society's uh, uh, per- period to another period in the same society. So in relation to nature, um, uh, uh, the view of nature, the view of Earth has, has changed just culturally. This is from Adam Carn, also from a Guardian article, in fact. Um, um, over the course of millennia, he writes, over the course of millennia, the way that people have imagined and perceived the natural world has changed repeatedly and often dramatically. The concept of nature, in inverted commas, is subjective, dynamic, and culturally constrained because uh, it's culturally conditioned, you could say. Um, the classic, as well, the classic example is smallholder agriculture. Uh, what was once, many thousands of years ago, considered the height of mastery over nature is now an archetypal image of humans living in harmony with their environment. So smallholder agriculture was once, many thousands of years ago, considered the height of mastery over nature is now an archetypal image of humans living in harmony with their environment changes culturally, the view of nature. It changes. Just to put a tag here on words in what he wrote, uh, 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 noticing um, imagined and perceived, because that's a lot of what I want to go into, that imagination is part of perception, and also the use of the word archetypal. I'm going to come back to these things. So views are not necessarily fixed. They change um, through and in the culture. They have changed. Um, views of nature have changed many times, and they will again. They will again, culturally. So they change culturally, but also as a, a Dharma practitioner, it's really important to recognize how views um, are dependent, basically, on, um, we could say, facets of the chitta, facets of the mind and the heart, dependent on the mind state, dependent on um, practicing different ways of looking, You're actually practicing a different view. And the sense that I have of something, whether it's 
the world, the nature, the cosmos, the self, the other, um, that changes dependent on, on facets of the chitta, dependent on different ways of looking. And that's something we can practice. So in other words, um, things, the things that we perceive, including nature, including earth, are um, empty of any uh, real independent way that they are. I mean, really going to this question of you, you realize it's not that things are a particular way, nature is a particular way. It's that all we have is views, and those views are dependent arisings. We can view in different ways, as I said before. So all things, including nature, including earth, are empty. Empty of any kind of real, independent way they are, independent of, of the way that we look at them. And therefore, because they're empty, they can be viewed in different ways. And that's one way of understanding what practice is. It's not a very common way of understanding what uh, meditative practice is and what the path is, but it's, it's, I think, a very fruitful way of looking. Meditation, practice, the journey of that is practicing uh, skill in, in different views and seeing what that does. As we just said, that the view of anything, in this case of nature or earth, view is a dependent arising, dependent on uh, what's dominant in the culture, we absorb from the culture, dependent also on the so-called inner mindset and factors of, of the mind and the heart and the way of looking, ways of looking. So view arises dependently and also is itself part of part of dependent origination, it, it, it conditions other things. Other things are dependent on view. It, in other words, it brings consequences. The view, any view that we have has certain consequences, and one of the consequences, as I mentioned before, is uh, its consequences on love. Views will affect love. They will um, cause love to deepen or grow in certain ways, or they will limit it, constrict it in certain ways. So love and view um, have this mutual reciprocity, mutual informing, mutual influencing, mutual dependency. Mutual dependency of love and view. Really, I hope you can hear that this is not abstract. I hope that as, as we go on in the talk, um, you can really understand how totally um, crucial this is and totally I'm talking about experience and I'm talking about our life and what comes out of our life and how we sense our life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.